Welcome, welcome, welcome to this episode of Tech Cars Machines. This episode was recorded in the era of that very unwelcome guest, SARS-CoV-2. You might notice from the audio that uh, unlike every other episode, this one was recorded remotely rather than in person. What you'll also notice is that it's one of our great episodes in terms of the fundamentals we're discussing, the groundbreaking progress being made, and last but not least, by any means, the enthusiasm of our guest, Prith Banerjee. Prith is the chief technical officer of ANSYS, a simulation company that is spelled A-N-S-Y-S. Prith and I first met right before the first of two occasions where he kindly served as a panelist at one of our private conferences in Palo Alto, California. Prith's bio is pretty star-studded, director of HP Labs, a partner at Accenture Consulting, CTO of uh, the two very large European conglomerates, ABB and Schneider Electric. You'll notice that Prith is particularly excited and has a particularly natural way of explaining his subject. And so you won't be too surprised if I told you, as I'm now about to, that he was also a professor at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, one of really the finest institutions of engineering in the world. As uh, you, our kind listeners, know, TCM explores the impact of sensing, connectivity, and analytics on the worlds of cars and machines. You've heard that from me every time you tune into one of these episodes. Sensing, connectivity, and analytics and their impact on the world of cars and machines. Now, we've talked a lot about the type of analytics that gets performed on data that's been collected and generated from a machine that's operating. However, for decades, there's been another type of analysis that is uh, prospective, if you will. Rather than collect data, the system uses software and the laws of nature to generate data, which it turn analyzes to model the behavior of a physical system uh, under you know, real-life operating uh, conditions. Sometimes these models are top-down, in other words, simulating the performance of a large, high-level system, let's say an aircraft wing, and sometimes they work at a foundational level. For example, modeling the behavior of an electronic circuit, the kind of work I did a lot of when I was an undergraduate and graduate student in electrical engineering. ANSYS works closer to the foundational level. It's a public company with the kind of valuation metrics that would put uh, many a venture capital-backed unicorn to shame. It has $24 billion of enterprise value, and that means it's trading at 16 times last 12 months revenues of $1.5 billion. That's 16 times revenues. And uh, even at that substantial scale, the company is growing about 10 to 18% a year in each of the last few years. And net income margins are really extraordinary in the 24 to 32% range. The stock, uh, no surprise, has tripled in the last three years. Prith does a great job of giving you the history of the company, explaining where it sits, where it's going, how it's making a big difference to the world of cars and machines. And so without further ado, let's get to it. Tech. Cars. Machines. Subscribe here or at techcarsmachines.com and gtkpartners.com. Our guest today is Prith Banerjee, Chief Technology Officer of ANSYS, which I gave you a little bit of a description of in our introduction. Uh, I first met Prith about uh, four years ago. We had the pleasure of uh, having Prith uh, present at one of our conferences, which are uh, the private conferences that you can access on our, on our website. And uh, Prith comes from a very, very accomplished background. And there's 
a lot to go through. We'll have his LinkedIn profile in the show notes. I have known Prith in the context of three of his jobs. One is a CTO, CTO of a very large Swiss uh, industrial conglomerate, ABB. The other one is at the helm, a CTO of the large, I would say, electrical products conglomerate, Schneider Electric, and now at Ansys, which is a simulation software company. Prith, thank you for joining us. And I have to say, when preparing for this podcast episode, which we're very thankful you've contributed your time to, I don't think I've seen you as excited uh, in the media collateral that I was going through uh, as you are now in the last uh, three or four years that I've uh, that I've seen you. Oh, thank you very much, Ali. It's an absolute pleasure to speak to you and your team. And it has been a uh, pleasure working with you in the past. As you mentioned, uh, I, I have joined ANSYS about two years ago as CTO. And uh, it's a fantastic role. Uh, it's a very exciting company. And, and of course, I'll have a chance to talk about it. But thank you for inviting me. It's our pleasure. And uh uh, Prith, in the uh, introduction, I gave our viewers a little bit of a pretty financial profile of ANSYS more than anything else, and really in its extraordinary story on its own, you know, $25 billion market cap, $1.5 billion of revenues, extraordinarily high margins, stock prices tripled over the last three years, and a real testament to both the value that the company has always been adding and really the dramatically accelerating relevance of ANSYS to all the things that are uh, favorites of our Tech Cars Machines podcast uh, listeners here. Why don't you give us a little bit of uh, background, Prith? What does ANSYS do? Thank you. Yes. So at a uh, high level, ANSYS helps companies around the world design and develop the most amazing products from sort of computer chips to rocket ships. We, our customers use, uh, use our products to engineer and test products completely in the digital domain without the need for costly and error-prone physical prototypes and experimentation. So we call this approach simulation-based product development or software-based product prototyping. So in the past, 20, 30, 40 years ago, people, when they build their product, they used to do hardware prototyping, right? And, And these things required a lot of time and cost and so on. But over the years, uh, ANSYS has developed this amazing, very detailed physics simulation capabilities where the world around us is governed by the laws of physics. And if we can accurately model the physics, you really don't need to do a hardware prototyping. So in the past, you had to actually take a model of of a plane, a model of a wing, put it in a wind tunnel and pass wind at 300 miles per hour to see if that wing will lift or not, right? But today with ANSYS simulation tools or fluid dynamic tools, if we say that wing, that wing will lift, it will lift. If we say there's a drag, it will be a drag. If we say there's a stall, there will be a stall. So we have completely eliminated the need for physical prototyping. And that is the value we provide. As a result, we enable our customers to drive top-line revenue by designing much better products, faster and with higher quality, and also bottom line cost savings by reducing the cost of R&D. So our customers are the most innovative companies in the world in industries as diverse as high-tech and semiconductor, aerospace and defense, automotive, industrial, energy. So these companies are trying to innovate and solve incredibly complex challenges in areas like 5G, autonomy, electrification, and industrial internet of things. 
That in a nutshell is what ANSYS does. And ANSYS today, as you said, is a $1.5 billion company, market cap about 25 billion. We have 4,200 amazing employees always working to solve customer problems. And an interesting financial thing that since you talked about financial is something that our CEO talks about. You look at all these public software companies in the world, there is about uh, 2,000. Then of them, if you take of, the, of those, how many are more than a billion? That's about 200. Of them, how many are more than 30% growth, growth margin? There's only 12. Of them, how many are growing at 10% or more every year? It's only four companies. That's an amazing statistic. Wow. Public software company, more than a billion in revenue, more than 30% gross margin and growing at 10% a year every year. There's four companies at the top. There's Microsoft, there's Adobe, there's Ansys. It is just an amazing, amazing story. Uh, we are very, very excited to be part of that group. That's amazing statistics. Thanks you. Thank you for adding to that. When I was a young puppy in the uh, former century, I remember in engineering school, finite element analysis, at least the computer modeling of finite element analysis was, was a big deal. Seems like that's where ANSYS started. Is that right? That is correct. So ANSYS started uh, exactly 50 years ago. In fact, last Friday is when we celebrated our 50th anniversary. It was started by our founder, John Swanson, who essentially created this technology called ANSYS Mechanical, which is finite element analysis. And the core, what he's doing is you look at the structures around the world, right? Of, and those structures are governed by pure physics. They are second order partial differential equations called the Euler equations. Uh, you have to solve them numerically and the numerical method is called finite element analysis. And that's where John Swanson got started. But over the years, we have acquired more capabilities so we can now solve Navier-Stokes equations in fluid dynamics, which is again a second order uh, set of equations. Then we acquired the capability to go for electromagnetic problems, which is Maxwell's equations. Then we acquired the capability to have semiconductor chip equations, so Kirchhoff's equations, voltage equations, and so on. Then optical uh, solutions. And most recently, we just acquired technology called numerical, which allows us to do photonic and IC simulations. So over the years, our core value proposition has always been take the physics around us, which is modeled by pure partial, second order partial differential equations, and solve them numerically using finite element analysis, finite volume methods, boundary element methods, finite domain, uh, finite difference time to find methods, different simulation methods, but they're all, the value is the same. Try to solve these problems most accurate manner, as fast as possible, and as robustly as possible. So you don't need hardware prototyping. Outstanding. And uh, Prith, for our listeners, and please correct me if I'm wrong, uh, it's important to note that one of the important fluids in any system is essentially heat as it travels through the air inside that system so that the finite element analysis combined with fluid dynamics, if I'm not mistaken, gives you a real sense for the thermal behavior of a particular system as it's being modeled. Uh, is that correct? That is exactly correct. So actually, when we started ANSYS 50 years ago, we were solving single physics equations, only the structural equations or only the fluids equations, right? Navier-Stokes or Euler or Maxwell's. Increasingly, the problems that our customers want us to solve is the 
multi-physics interactions, the fluid structure interactions, as you talked about for the thermal in, in a method called the conjugate heat transfer, right? You have a hot material inside and that hot material may be generated because of the computer chip. So imagine a computer chip sitting on a printed circuit board as that computer chip goes at two gigahertz, it generates maybe a thousand watts of, of power and that generates the heat. That heat you can actually model and that because of that heat, it sits on a printed circuit board, that printed circuit board expands so we can model the thermal expansion of the printed circuit board through ANSYS, right? And then in order to cool it, you need to put sort of uh, cool air or cold water and that's the fluid. So how do you actually take heat away from the hot chip, right? Through thermal conduction for convection or conduction and so on. So we can model all of it through the fluid structure electronic interactions. And that is the, those are the kinds of multiphysical interactions that our customers are always looking for. And we provide all of these capabilities inside a high, high performance workstation or low cost sort of clusters on-prem on a private cloud or the private cloud, uh, public cloud. So our, all our software now runs on Microsoft Azure cloud. Very impressive. Thank you for that. Thank you for helping bring that all uh, all alive for our audience. Uh, you know, Prith, I uh, would like to go a little bit into the uh, into your personal back, background and how you wound up at Ansys. But maybe an interesting way of doing that would actually be to first talk about some of the roles you had in the IoT space at uh, ABB and Schneider, APM predictive analytics and how that kind of predictive analytics really depends on physical uh, simulation. And maybe that's, we go through that path first, if you will, to then bring you to why you're at ANSYS and, and what, you're, what you're targeting. Is that okay? That is exactly why how I landed up at ANSYS. So, so I have been working on the IoT area for more than 10 years. And as you know, Ali, I started my career Way back uh, in academia, I used to be a professor at University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. I was at Northwestern and so on. But then through those days, I landed up at uh, in my role at as director of HP Labs. And at HP Labs, more than 10 years ago, is when I started my first work on IoT. We had this incredibly exciting project called SENSE, Central Nervous System for the Earth. And the vision was, this was the year was 2008, where we said the world around us will have all the IoT components. And what if we could have sense everything around the world, right? The central nervous system for the earth. And you collect all the data and you analyze all the data. What could you do and what could you predict? So I were, we were doing IoT work way back when, about 12, uh, 12 years ago. Around that time, as you know, uh, the GE produced this very exciting work paper on the industrial internet of things right, in, right. Uh, in 20, 2012. That literally changed, transformed the whole industry. They said, hey, here is a $14 trillion market uh, revenue opportunity and everybody well, became excited. And so ABB recruited me as their CTO in 2012 and essentially said, Prit, help us build towards this IoT journey. So I helped ABB uh, building their IoT platform called Ability and that allowed ABB to take all their large assets. They had transformers, they had uh, robots, they had switch gears and so on, all those large asset intensive industries, right? How do you connect them through through sensors and so on and connect it to that IoT platform? And the reason they did that was to enable them to do remote services, right? 
when a robot in the field fails, right? If it is not IoT connected, the customer would have to call up ABB and say, hey, I, my, my, customer, my robot failed and, and send a replacement uh, part, right? Well, when that it is IoT connected, ABB found out as soon as the robot failed and they could ship a, a, a service technician. Not only that, they could remotely diagnose where that, uh, that product was failing, right? And, and so when the service technician arrived, he could take the replacement part with him. Oftentimes, remotely, you could, if there were enough redundancies, they could fix the part, robot, just remotely through a service engineer sitting in Bangalore. Now, so this, the IoT was essentially meant for solving this simple problem of remote services, right? It's a low-hanging fruit. But the next step was, well, can we use it to predict when that robot will fail, right? And so that generated this whole area of predictive analytics, which I will kind of talk about, right? But, and that is sort of the journey. And I will sort of, so I, I did that for a couple of years. And then I moved to Schneider Electric. And essentially, Schneider Electric was in the same business as ABB. And I helped them build their EcoStructure IoT platform to connect up all their UPS devices and their breakers and panels and so on to this EcoStructure platform. Same problem. They are trying to solve remote services, predictive analytics, and so on. The problem that I found in working in these companies is that the quality of the predictive analytics is based on the amount of data that you see, right? If you, an AI is only as good as the data you train it with, right? So they say, uh, show a picture of a cat, right? You show 10 pictures of a cat, 100 pictures of a cat, then the AI algorithm knows what a cat looks like. But if you show it a dog, it gets confused because it has right. not seen that before. So data analytics based on training data is only as accurate as the data you train it with. If you have not seen that before, you can never predict that. An example, when Space Shuttle Challenger exploded, right? No amount of predictive analytics could have predicted that that space shuttle would expand because the number of times it exploded was only one, right? There was no historical data of, of space shuttle exploding. On the other hand, if you do physics-based simulation, you can actually model the fact that space shuttle is coming down to Earth at a speed of 5 mark, 10 mark, 20 mark, tremendous fluid sort of uh, interactions happening with the tiles. And that, because of it, there's heat that is being generated, the tiles expand and they explode. You can actually model the space shuttle Challenger exploding if you had a simulation-based model. This was the aha moment I actually faced. I said, hey, these database analytics things that we are doing at ABB and Schneider is kind of not working. We need to have a physics-based model. I used to be a customer at ANSYS when I was at ABB and Schneider. I sort of started doing a little bit of study myself. Hey, it would be good to have a simulation-based method to do digital twins. That is what attracted me to, to ANSYS. So literally, I knew you asked me that question, why ANSYS? It is because I was personally very excited about IoT. I wanted to solve the problem. And the way to solve the problem is through simulation-based methods that ANSYS is now very known for with their digital twin product. But that is not the end, end game. I will tell you where, where the future is. It's not pure simulation. It's not pure data analytics. It is in the combination and I will share with your readers and, 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 and participants what the future is later on. 
Excellent. Thank you very much. And that's such a great point, Prith, in, in the sense that sometimes we get ahead of ourselves in terms of what a computer can infer from data uh, without a formal understanding of what, what drives the, the, the inputs to the outputs, right? Sometimes that formal understanding can allow you to land a spaceship on Earth and land a spaceship on Mars because you understand how the laws of gravity work. And there's no amount of modeling of landing on, on Earth that would allow you to understand how to land a spaceship on, on Mars. And that's just really something to, I think, for our listeners to, to grasp. Because obviously in this tech series, we're big proponents of analytics, ML, all the, all the fun and cool stuff. But in the end, you do need to have a formal understanding uh, of at least some parts of the problem to either make progress or make that progress a uh, a lot more efficient from a computing perspective. Absolutely. And in fact, let me just, uh, for your listeners, I, I, because you mentioned sure. this thing about analytics and AI, uh, I, I just want to share a very uh, interesting point with you, right? So you mentioned gravity, right? So 500 years ago, when Isaac Newton sort of observed this apple following, and, and he said, oh, hey, there's this thing called gravity, right? And he, and he essentially derived this whole force equals mass times acceleration and so on, right? How did he do it? I mean, he's an amazing guy, right? He's sort of like a, a brilliant scientist, a genius, right? But, and in a way we call it like, a, almost like he had superpower uh, instincts, right, around him. He, he just saw that apple fall and he said, oh my God, this is this fundamental physics of gravity and gravitational pull that is defining why an apple goes down at a speed, right? You and I, maybe we, we watch an apple go down, a ball go down, a airplane go down and we never make that connection how is the physics working right <laughs> but what you can do with analytics is essentially you you take this this observation that here is an apple sitting 10 feet above ground right and you you let go of the apple and it drops down in exactly two seconds it drops down and at a certain velocity of i don't know 10 meters per second it is hitting the earth ground right then you take this same apple and you take it at 2000 feet and you drop it and it drop and, and it hits the ground at 4,000 meters per second. So essentially what is going on is Isaac Newton was observing the laws of physics, right? Here is the input, here is the output, here is the input, here is the output. Based on it, he created the physics of gravitational pull, the, the physics of Newton's law, force equals mass times acceleration, which is a d2 squared over dx squared over dt, right? And now you have this. So so Isaac Newton created those equations, a partial different equation, and here ANSYS can go in and actually model that ball going down at whatever speed and whether it will crash or not, right? So here was an observation that Isaac Newton did, right? And he formed this hypothesis, this equation, right, for, for the force equal mass acceleration and gravity and so on, right? He introduced the concept of equations and then, well, you can solve it analytically or you can solve it through simulation with ANSYS. This is what ANSYS simulation does. It can take an average human like me and you and Tom, right, into a superpower, right? We can all become the Isaac Newtons of the world. This is the power of simulation. Prith, thank you for assuming that uh, I would be in the same category as you. I'll, I'll take that and, and, and hurry on be in the, before you uh, change your mind. <laughs> um, so at ANSYS, what are the business outcomes you're targeting? And if you prefer, you can tell us in the, in the general corporate context or specifically with respect to autonomy, 5G, and electrification, which are particularly germane to our listeners, whichever, whichever approach you like. 
at the fundamental level, what ANSYS is trying to do, as I said, is to help our customers build amazing products, right? Using simulation. And so the value of simulation is a, a few things, right? We, we promote, we allow much more rapid innovation. Why is it rapid? Well, in the if you had to do a hardware prototype-based stuff, right? I want to build a, a, a car or engine, right? I have to build the actual hardware prototype of that engine. It will take six months to build the first prototype. And you test it. Oh, it doesn't work. Oh, my God, I have to do it another time, right? Another six months. So instead of it, if you could do that innovative product design and simulation on a computer, you can do much more rapid innovation, right? You can do 30 different designs, 100 different designs, right? All within a matter of days, right? So it's rapid innovation. That allows you to lower cycle times. That allows you to reduce risk, right? So once you test a product, right? And you have, in a physical product, you can only test it maybe three different ways, right? You have a, a on a simulation, you can test it many, many, many ways, right? So you can reduce that risk. You, you Essentially, you increase quality of your products and you manage the complexity. So at a high level, these are the impacts of simulation. From an end customer's business perspective, we enable our customers to essentially have top-line revenue growth. So our, our, a customer such as ABB that I used to work for, right? It, we allow ABB to make more amazing robots, right? Faster, more rapidly, et cetera. So it, it gets to their top-line revenue growth, as well as with cost savings, right? Improve the R&D efficiency. So the cost to build a robot with hardware prototypes and so on is maybe a million dollars. The cost to build a robot using simulation is only $200,000. That allows them to build fewer, fewer physical prototypes and lower warranty costs. So essentially, the business outcome we are driving is top-line revenue growth and bottom-line cost savings, right? So therefore, the CEOs of our customers, they absolutely love us, right? Because it's helping both top line and bottom line. Now, with respect to autonomy and so on, so in the past, uh, we were focused on building these individual solvers like, like mechanical structural solver or fluid solver or electromagnetic solver and so on. Increasingly, we are helping our customers with end solutions, solutions like autonomy, right? So as BMW is trying to build an autonomous car, right? What's the difference between a normal car and autonomous car? Well, in normal car, you or I are, are the driver, right? In an autonomous car, that car drives by itself. How? Because it senses things around it, right? So what kind of sensors does a car have? Well, it has a LIDAR sensor. It has a camera sensor. It has a thermal sensor. It has a radar sensor. We have the ability to simulate all of those sensors in the most accurate manner, right? And then we combine that with scenario planning. And then we do the full, what is called closed loop simulation to simulate the car for those 8 billion miles that you would like to test it, right? I mean, it would be hard to certify a car unless, I mean, people say that you need to have a car driven on the road for about 8 or 10 billion miles. Well, it turns out all these autonomous car companies that are building this car, right? They have driven about 25 million miles so far. It will take them 1,000 years to actually do road testing of all those cars. Hence, simulation, right? So through simulation, you can take that entire autonomous car with all the sensors, with all the scenarios, and simulate all those possible edge cases to say, yes, this car is going to run. For example, if you have an autonomous car, we, we both live in San Francisco, right? And you say, I'm going to test this car on uh, driving on Golden Gate Bridge at 9 a.m. in the morning when it is sunny. And at that point, there's one child that is crossing the street. 
my car actually is sensor senses it, it stops, checkbox, okay, the car is safe. Now I would like to say, hey, what if it instead of 9 a.m., it is 9 p.m. in the evening, and instead of being sunny, it is raining, and oh, by the way, it is snowing also, and instead of one child, there's 20 children and a pedestrian and a cat and a dog. Well, I would have to wait 10 billion years to get to those combination of scenarios. In a simulation environment, I could just create that scenario, Golden Gate Bridge, 9 p.m., snowing, frozen, 32 pedestrians going at 90 miles per hour. Does my car stop? Yep, done, checkbox. So that's the power of simulation, and that's what we are doing with autonomy. We are doing similar things with electrification. We are doing similar things for 5G and IoT. So that's sort of what we are doing in terms of business outcomes for our customers. That's very impressive. So Prith, uh, does this mean that I could give you um, an environmental model, meaning the Golden Gate Bridge with its particular features, and then I could tell you what type of LIDAR and what type of sensor packages my car have, and you'd be able to run that simulation dynamically and, and interchangeably, right? I could take a different vendor's LIDAR and put it in and you'd be able to, to simulate that uh, uh, just as easily? That is exactly the case. So so we actually, our autonomous solution, right? We provide this solution for our OEMs, OEMs such as BMW, right? But also for the people who are the tier one suppliers to the OEMs like Aptiv, mm-hmm. right? Or the people who are making these LIDARs themselves, like, or the cameras, like, like FLIR or, or AI, right? So essentially, our simulation works with the component suppliers. We can simulate those components. They supply with the actual LiDAR things, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like the aptis and so on, and with the whole cars. And, the, and we provide that entire multi-stage sort of simulation environment. And exactly, we can take any environment, and we work with a company, with a partner company called Edge Case Research. It's a startup company based in, 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 in Pittsburgh in, from Carnegie Mellon University, right? So basically when a Waymo car is going around and driving and taking pictures with the cameras, right? That's a real video that they're taking. We can mm-hmm. take a 20 second part of a actual camera, right? In any location that you have, right? Golden Gate Bridge or uh, Eiffel Tower in Paris or whatever, right? And on that, and, and in that there may be 20, 30 pedestrians. We have an automated way to replace those pedestrians with twice as many pedestrians or 10 times as many pedestrians, more cars, less cars, skidding conditions and so on, create the scenario. This is what is called scenario generation. And then do a full vehicular dynamic simulation, right? With the different LIDARs and so on. So we can actually tell an OEM company, hey, this LIDAR will not, will stop the car at 50 miles per hour, but it will not stop it at going at 90 miles per hour, right? So they can make those design, design decisions. And this is the power of simulation. We can allow our customers to do much more rapid innovation and increased quality and lower risks. It's interesting, uh, Prith. There seems to be a, a, a nuance, but still an important nuance between a lot of the simulations ANSYS has been doing and, for example, the autonomy one. When you simulate the performance of a wing, first of all, you know, it's, you've built up the, the performance of the wing from first principles, right? From those equations that you've talked about. And then the scenarios under which you test it, while there are always going to be edge cases that might be sort of forgotten, et cetera, but it seems like the scenarios under which that model needs to be tested are a lot more are essentially kind of finite compared to the scenarios under which 
an automobile gets tested, right? To some extent, you have a model, but maybe it's not the model isn't built up from first principles. And in, in the auto scenario, some of it is maybe just uh, in turn depends on sort of machine learning input. And then you're operating in an environment where it's harder to determine what the edge cases are, right? Is that a Am I drawing a distinction without a difference, or is that something that you need that you think about? No, no, you're, you're doing a fantastic distinction, and actually that brings me to sort of the topic of IoT that I wanted to kind of end my conversation with, right? So what we enable our customers, so in the past, we used to allow our customers to do what is called full 3D simulation, right? Then solving their Navier-Stokes equation, right, in the most detailed level, right? Doing the most complex meshing, having 40 million mesh points, right, over those wings, and those airflow going over the wings and so on. So that is what we used to do, which are called these 3D models, right? Uh, and using finite element, finite volume methods. But then there's this new technology that we have invented called creating reduced order models. And this is where it's almost like coming to AI, right? You do a bunch of detailed simulations, Ali, right? And based on those, doing the simulations, you can you can take that detailed model and build a simpler system level model, which is called a reduced order model, right? So instead of having a full 3D model, a model in actually three dimensions and time four dimensions, you can extract extrapolate it into a zero dimensional model or a 1D model. A static ROM is what is called a zero dimensional model and a 1D ROM, reduced order is what is called a dynamic ROM. Anyway, those are sort of technical details. But essentially, you take a really complex component like a robot, using our twin builder product, we can build a reduced order model of that robot, right, to say, hey, if the pressure, so, and essentially, and then say, okay, and the reduced order model says, if my temp outside temperature is 20 degrees, this thing, robot will crack after five hours. If the outside temperature is 100 degrees, the robot will crack after 10 minutes. And the after outside temperature is 900 degrees, the robot will crack in three seconds. Those three things, right, you did through very, very detailed 3D simulation, right, using ANSYS mechanical, fluent, HFS, and so on. Then what you do is you stick, stick that robot in the outside world, right, and with an IoT platform, you collect the temperature, right? What is that outside temperature working the robot? And if the robot is outside temperature is, is 10 degrees, I will predict that the robot will crack after 20 hours. And if it is outside temperature is 200 degrees, it will crack after 10 minutes. And if outside temperature is 500 degrees, it will crack after five seconds. I had done the characterization before. That's that reduced order model. Then I tie that in with the IoT and voila, I have a predictive analytics of an asset with a very, very high degree of accuracy. These are the kinds of capabilities that ANSYS is providing with our twin builder, digital twin product. And that seems to be a spectacular change in the typical industrial design process, right? Because what you're describing is not the old serial process, you know, simulation to prototype to production, but in a sense, because you've got that sensing out there, your models are being informed and updated in real time by the sensing that's being done in the field on the finished product. That is exactly true. Let, let me give you another example of how, how this is. So I'm literally 
imagining myself sitting on on top of Golden Gate Bridge, right? And suppose there is, I'm trying to predict that that bridge is going to have a crack, right? Well, and because of the crack, it's going to fail. So what happens is, if we know there is a crack of 10 inches on a particular part of the bridge with ANSYS mechanical and with the amount of stress going on on Golden Gate Bridge today with the 10,000 cars that are going, I can predict through simulation how much that crack will grow by next week. It'll, I will predict through simulation that crack will go from 10 inches to 12 inches, okay? And then... I have an IoT connection to the Golden Gate Bridge. I actually measured the crack next Tuesday to say how much was the crack. If the crack is at 14 inches, I say, oh my God, I cracked more than the simulation predicted. So I need to accelerate my simulation. So my simulation model of the bridge more gets more accurate with the IoT data. If that similar, if the, uh, if the IoT said the crack was only eight inches, that means, hey, I was wrong. I need to decelerate the simulation, right? Instead of doing the crack propagation at 12 inches, I need to go to eight inches. So the next week's prediction will be more accurate. So the combination of IoT feeding into the simulation, right? So the power of the digital twin is, as you know, the digital twin is you have a physical asset, you have a model of the asset, and with the IoT, you have two-way information flow going back and forth. With ANSYS Twin Builder, we have the ability to get a more accurate prediction through the simulation of the digital twin that you cannot do with pure data analytics. So this is a nice lead on to uh, the recently announced object management group. And uh, Prith, I'm just going to turn it over to you. But, but right before I do that, I was interested to see that Len Lease, where our good friend Bill Rue is involved, is uh, and also comes from an IoT background, was part of that uh, object management group. Why don't I just turn it over to you to tell me what that group is doing and, and why it's important to the future of the digital twin. Absolutely. So the object management group is, uh, chairman is Richard Soli. He's a very good friend of mine for the last 10 years. And they have done various standards in the industry. And about five years ago, they ran this organization called the Industrial Internet Consortium, IIC, where Bill Rue, when he was at that time head of G Digital, right? He mm -hmm. was a big proponent of of joining the IIC and I was CTO at ABB at the time. And so Bill and I are very good friends. We both joined the IIC and, and the IIC grew to about 300 uh, companies, right? And ultimately Schneider, when I joined Schneider, Schneider also participated in IIC. So there was, this was a consortium of companies that all valued the interoperability of an IoT-based ecosystem, right? And everybody was doing predictive analytics and so on and so forth. So this is, there was a hugely successful consortium that Richard Soli ran. Bill Rue was part of, Prith Banerjee was part of, and it was at, at ABB and so on, right? Fast forward to 2020. Bill Rue leaves G, goes to lend -Lease. And now he's doing building management infrastructure and so on. And he's facing, he say, hey, I'm trying to build these digital twins, but there's no standards out there to build this thing, right? And I have got digital twins in, in building management. I have digital twins in aerospace defense, building management, uh, digital twins in, in automotive and so on. Hey, this whole world is becoming, there's no standards, no nothing, right? We should have a consortium, right? So he basically, Bill Rue goes to, to my friend Richard Soli and says, hey, OMG, you did this IIC so successfully. 
five years ago, maybe we should do a, a digital twin consortium. And so Richard Soli calls me, right? I mean, it's the same characters, right? He says, Prim, <laughs> you are, you are now <laughs> ANSYS. Do you say value? I said, absolutely, because I'm trying to push at ANSYS this whole simulation-based digital twins and so on. And so then I say, hey, I've got this good friend at Said Tabed at, at Dell, right? I mean, he was also part of the IIC. So I call up, let's say, so a bunch of people all got together and say, you know what? We need to do this digital twin consortium. That is how it got formed, right? A few people, I, I would claim my, myself to be part of the, uh, uh, actually we are, we are one of the four founding members, right? So Microsoft, Dell, ANSYS, and Lendlease are the founding members of the dig- newly formed digital twin consortium, uh, which is coordinated by the object management group. Now, after the announcement, we just announced it like less than a month ago. We now have, I think, 70 groundbreaker members and a lot of companies are joining. And this whole ecosystem is just going to really grow and expand and explode. We've got four broad vertical groups we are going after. Building management is one, so which is being sort of obviously led by Lendlease and others. Then we are looking at aerospace and defense and oil and gas and energy and also aerospace and defense. So four very, very exciting verticals for which digital twins will be created. And this whole consortium will allow people to do a lot more collaborative research in digital twins, both physics-based digital twins combined with analytics-based digital twins. Excellent. And, you know, going back to the um, automotive example where you can swap in different LIDARs from different vendors and and, uh, simulate the outcomes for the performance of the system, which is in that case the automobile, Presumably, in the, the part of the job of the OMG is to allow sort of a plug and play ability and interchangeability of, uh, of the models of their own offerings that the um, consortium members are providing to, to the simulation environment, right? How do you go about testing and verification and compatibility to make sure that people are submitting models that are valid and, and work appropriately uh, with the tools that the group members typically use? So what, what the, again, we have just started the DTC, right? So I'm on the steering committee and, and we are having all kinds of meetings here, right? So one of the things that we have agreed to do as a, as a group is to, first of all, publish these sort of frameworks and standards and so on. How are the digital twins going to be created, right? Some of the digital twins will be based on analytics alone. Some will be based on simulation. Some will be based on combination and so on, right? And and then the other thing is there's a need to create what is called a definition, digital twin definition language, right? So when you look at a large system like a, an airplane, right? And, and you can say, oh, I want to have a, a digital twin of a Boeing airplane. Well, an airplane is a large system, right? It has, mm-hmm. an airplane has a fuselage, it's a tail, it has two wings. So you can say, okay, I can describe an airplane having a fuselage, a tail, and two wings. Click, click. Digital twin of a wing. So then how do I describe the wing? A wing has this and this has two engines on it. Click, click, digital twin of the engine. Oh, the engine has the XYZ and it has 52 blades. Oh, I need that digital twin of the blade. Click, click. So essentially, I start with trying to build a digital twin of a system, which is the airplane, and it recursively calls functions, which is the digital twin of the wing, the digital twin of the engine, the of the blade, and within that, the skin of the blade, I mean, you can go into as much level as possible. To, and that is where sort of ANSYS and CAD models and simulation come in, right? Because we are in the, in the heart of it, right? When products get built, they are built using 
sort of system level tools, right? They're the top level requirements, right? Using model-based software engineering, MBSE and requirements and so on. Then you enter it into a CAD model. Then that CAD goes into meshing, that meshing goes into simulation. So we are playing in this ecosystem, right? So essentially, there is a language called digital twin definition language that we are partnering with Microsoft on to express digital twins of complex right. systems. The system can be an aerospace system, can be a building management, can be an oil and gas, a digital well, oil fields or, or manufacturing. Then with, so once you specify it with the digital twin definition language, then you go into the actual models, right? And all the models that are being created, you, you kind of mentioned this, right? How do you encourage more collaboration? Well, through open source, just like in the open source world, the whole operating system Linux got created, right? And lots of people contributed to the open source right, of Linux, right. right? And it was maintained by commercial companies like Red Hat and, and SUSE and, and so on, right? Or in MapReduce, right? Created in the open source form by Google. And then it was it is ma maintained by, by Cloudera and Mapper and so on, right? We feel that all these technologies, all these different people will contribute to an open source world, will interact. And then ultimately some commercial offerings will be say, okay, you can use, you can download that open source software or you can have it officially maintained and serviced by companies like Ansys, right? And so this is how we plan to make money out of it, but the value will be through the collaboration. So that's a extraordinarily bold project and sounds like it's the right time for it from a technology and technical point of view. Now, if you go to, you know, the guy who's managing an oil platform and say, I'm going to let you be able to double click your way from the top of the system to the, to the bottom of the system on this computer. Sometimes they'll, their reaction is, could you just get out of the way for now? I want to close this valve before we go up in flames, right? How do you get the buy-in from the business operations to allow such a bold and, and clearly useful modification or enhancement to their approach to actually take hold? You're, you're an expert on you know, driving change in large organizations. What, what, what are your uh, views on that? So first of all, I think there is now growing realization by different people in various industries that this digital twin sort of tsunami that is coming is, is actually real. So okay, uh, right. let me tell you some sort of, since you talked about so financials and so on, right? The digital twin idea was is actually about seven, eight years old, right? I mean, it's more than 10 years old. Right, right. I the remember market, from the GE The market either, for, yeah. exactly, the market for digital twins, right? It's about, if you look at 2020, it's about three, four billion today, right? But the That's market nice. opportunity is going to be 26 billion by 2025, right? So this is like going through a hockey state, right? It was less than a billion just a few years ago to three, four billion today to 26 billion by the year 2025. Why is that? You, I mean, and again, I can send you, you know, your listeners, uh, point you, point them to a, a, a really good research done by Grandview Research, right? So they can Please. go to Grandview Research and, and look that statistic up. But you, in manufacturing alone, right? The, the percentage of that market, that, that $26 billion in manufacturing alone is about 20%. So $5 billion out of that is in manufacturing, right? There's about 30% in residential commercial, which is why land leased interest, right? So the point is that this VP of operations in this manufacturing company, right? There was a old way of doing things, which is paper and process and so on. Well, he looked at all these different injection molding machines and the lathes and so on. Oh, this machine is not up and so on. That is the old world. Right? The new world is industry Ford Auto, right? All connected, smart manufacturing and so on. Where things are, 
I mean, they are not making 20 million copies of the same product, right? I mean, it's being, people want the, the efficiency of large production with a customization of one, right? That's the future of manufacturing. A VP of operations of such a manufacturing plant cannot get to that, right? Using 1900s technology, right? So they have to embrace digital transformation, therefore digital twin, therefore all these technologies. So it is actually a fairly easy thing, right? I was just talking to, I mean, if you if you look at our, our panel, I mean, I, I just want to point our listeners to this Simulation World Conference that we held uh, uh, June 10th and 11th, right? And I ur- urge them to look at sort of a, a keynote that I presented on long-term technology strategy, where I highlight some of these things. And also a panel I moderated where the CTO of Stanley Black & Decker, Sudeep Bangalore, talked about the fact that in his large factories, he has 150 factories, the cost that he can save is $100 million, right? Of, of saving in the injection molding machines alone, right? So when these numbers are shared with the CEOs, the VP of operations has no choice but to listen. You know, it's, an, it's interesting. I was, uh, you know, we both, as you said, live in San Francisco. I was on Van Ness uh, Street, which is a, you know, six lane boulevard going down the center of the city. One of the construction workers that I saw, and he wasn't a manager. He was sort of walking the, the construction site with tools and doing things. He had an iPad on his tool belt. He actually like, and every now and then he would turn around and refer to, I guess, you know, to see where the underground infrastructure is, et cetera. And that kind of goes to show you that the digital twin compared with the visualization added to the visualization that's available via that iPad or even uh, augmented reality can really make a difference in terms of how immediately and in real time, the benefit of this digital twin is delivered to the person that's on site and is really critical in terms of the adoption of these solutions. Absolutely. And just to make a point, right, this this worker that you talked about on Van Street, I just think about a plumber that comes to your home, right? He's, say, think of the analog plumber, right? He comes in and he tries to fix a pipe behind the wall, right? And there's leaking happening. The wall is leaking. He has no clue. Imagine this plumber going with an iPad, goes into your home, right? And he's connected to the drawings, the plumbing drawings of the building when it was done like 10 years ago, right? And he points the iPad at that wall and through GPS or Bluetooth or whatever, he has exact location, right? He knows exactly where that pipe is, right? And tied with simulation, he can say, hey, there's a leak happening through ANSYS fluid simulation. He can simulate what is happening. He can simulate, if I were to break this at this point, puncture the pipe, what is going to happen? All of those things can be visualized through augmented reality. Think about the digital plumber, right? This analog plumber with these Vuforia glasses or um, forget the iPad, right? Wearing this augmented reality glass, looks at a wall, looks at the pipes behind the wall. And as he is drilling through the wall to fix the pipe, sees real-time simulation of what if I cut this, how much water would flow to answer simulation. This is where we are headed. That's pretty impressive. So let's take that thread in the future and maybe transition our, our uh, discussion a little bit to, to a little bit further into the future. Where, do you think that some of these capabilities will actually finally, I would say, enable outcome-based services? You know, we talked about asset performance monitoring, predictive analytics. The goal was also to be able to just provide, you know, jet engines as a service, you know, essentially every piece of equipment as a service. Do you think we're a lot closer now as a result of these tools than we were several years ago? 
Absolutely. In fact, uh, in 2015, I presented a, a, a sort of white paper to the World Economic Forum in Davos, where we can talk about this whole journey towards outcome-based, and many other companies have also talked about it, right? So essentially, everything as a service, instead of giving a jet engine, right, doing the jet engine as a service, a transportation as a service, right? And the, the value of this is the following, right? If you own a car, right, and as the owner of the car, you are not motivated to keeping your car really working all the time, right? Well, it fails, you say, oh, should it fail? And now I go to, go to the repair shop and fix it. But, but if the owner is motivated to keeping the uptime of the car all the time, right? Suppose you are Uber and you have a fleet of cars, you are highly motivated to have all your cars up all the time, right? So as you are going towards car as a service, as opposed to owning the car for $20,000, right? If I, as a customer, just rent out the outcome of transportation as a service. I pay them $20, $20 to, to go somewhere else, right? Uber is highly motivated to keep all their cars up all the time. And therefore, they will need predictive analytics, right? To make sure that those things, just before it fails, they will be able to repair those things and so on, right? So this is absolutely coming, right? In every industry, people are talking about energy as a service, building as a service, and so Literally, what Airbnb and Uber have done today, it is the future, right? Sort of outcomes and so on. And I am absolutely sure that we have we are very close to that that end, end state, right? And so to give an example, people talk about in the uh, energy industry, right? Oh, I, I'm going to do IoT and so on and so forth. And I will sell this fantastic IoT technology to a city government of say city of San Jose or city of San Francisco. Well, the city governments have no money, right? But if they had the money, then I, they could have actually done the IOTization of all their lights and so on and so forth and saved a whole ton of money. The trouble is nobody knows how to, who will pay the money, right? So essentially there are these very sophisticated people who are thinking about it, okay? So like, for example, an SI company, uh, I think it was TCS or Wipro, one of the companies, the Indian companies, they went to the city of Pune, proposed it, hey, I will IOTize all your lights and everything in your city of Pune, and the energy savings that you have, you don't have to pay me a thing. But over the next 20 years, you pay me 5% of the savings. So essentially, the city of Pune say, hey, I don't lose anything. And if this really works, they will save energy consumption by 30%. And I'm absolutely willing to give 5% of the 30% saving to, to Wipro or I forget the, the Indian company. This is the future. Outcome-based businesses, right? So now these future business leaders, like the future business CEOs, have to take that leap, have to trust this technology, and this will totally benefit society and everybody else. And it's interesting, right? For that to work, it, we've kind of come back full circle. The machine learning isn't enough, right? You need a physical model to augment it because nobody's going to repair, nobody's going to put in $1,000 uh, of, of new brakes if it's only 50-50 that it was the right time. And you certainly don't want to wait too long, right, if you're Uber. So we've come back to that integration of machine learning and physical modeling that we started with. That, that is exactly the reason we change, we rotate our cars, uh, our tires every 5,000 miles, or we go and do an oil change after 20,000 miles is because of what is called preventive maintenance. The car companies take statistics of all the million cars that are driving on the road and they say, 
on the average, every 5,000 miles, you should change, rotate your car, rotate tire or change your oil, right? But if you are driving as crazy as Spritz drives, Spritz tires need to be rotated after 2,000 miles, not, not 10,000, right? Or not 5,000. Or maybe as Ali drives, you are a very cautious driver, I've heard, and your tires need to be rotated after 10,000 miles, right? So through an IoT connection, you can actually model predict when your tires need rotation, right? And if you do it purely based on statistics, you will not be accurate. If you tie that in with the simulation, that will be an accurate model. And to your point of the 50-50, when I was at ABB, right, we are having all these robots and so on, the million dollar assets, and we say predictive analytics, we predict it it will fail next Thursday. If the accuracy of that is 60%, which is actually a number that I have, right? So I and I replaced a part, I made a 40% error. I just made a $400,000 mistake replacing the asset, which I need not have replaced. Through simulation-based, we can raise it up to 95% or the combination, not simulation alone, but the combination of simulation and analytics will actually get you to the 95%. So when when we say this million-dollar asset will fail, it will fail. You better replace it. Chris, I mean, clearly working in a public company, you have some form of a PL and and operating income objectives. Is there something amongst the types of things we've talked about where you also maybe even informally measure yourself and your success at, at ANSYS? Are there things out there you want to see some of these creations where, where you would say, wow, you know what? We made it financially successful, but that's physical manifestation of my work at ANSYS is, is what makes me know I'm, I've been successful. So, I mean, from a visionary perspective, I, I, I have been fortunate to work for, for a CEO, Ajay Gopal, who is very, very supportive of all the dreams I have. So, so one of the dreams I had for, for ANSYS was to move into a whole new vertical, vertical of healthcare, right? Mm-hmm. So today we sell to our simulation products in aerospace defense, in automotive, in, 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 in industrial things, in, in high tech and so on, right? But not in healthcare. And the question is why, right? In, in most of the other vertical, I mean, there's, if you look at the R&D expenditures across these different industries, all industries is $1 trillion. $1 trillion. The simulation spend in a typical company is about 2%. So of a $1 trillion, the simulation spend of R&D is $20 billion, which, by the way, is the total available market for ANSYS, right? TAM, right? This is what we say. And, and we are, we get 1.5 billion of that 20 billion market. Now, of this 1 trillion market, $240 billion is in healthcare. Okay. But in health, unlike other industries like aerospace, right, you know that Boeing or Airbus, before they build a plane, they use simulation to test that plane. When Ford or GM makes a car, they use simulation to test the car. When you name it, right? ABB makes a robot, they use simulation to test the run, except in healthcare. When drug companies invent a new drug and we are facing the COVID crisis as we speak, right? They do a little experimentation in their lab with chemistry things, right? I take hydrochloric acid and ammonia and mix it together and I treat it with this, with this little thing in a test tube. Once that works, we test it on mice, then we test it on rats, then we test it on on baboons, on monkeys, on humans, right? Then one human, then 10 humans, then 100 right. humans. We do clinical trials. 
the cost of a new drug is 2.5 billion dollars because it takes exactly. such a huge cost because of the clinical trials and so on what if what if you could simulate everything you could accelerate the covid-19 vaccine i mean i shouldn't say, but i'm just, this is the vision right. right so what i am trying to do is to solve a societal problem right move ansys towards a vertical of healthcare right and essentially use simulation for pharma companies for medical device for pharma companies like novartis and pfizer and so on for medical device companies like medtronic and striker and g right making pacemakers and 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 cr machines and so on whole new clinical applications that will drive different uh, sort of for a doctor to just before they perform surgery right i mean they will use an ansys simulation in the back end to say hey if i were to do this heart surgery at this point how much blood will flow i mean essentially you could do all those kind of things with clinical apps this is the grand vision that i am sort of excited about and you can clearly see the uh, feel the passion in my voice right i can i can well uh prith that's that's a, maybe that's a really exciting note and a futuristic and hopeful note for us to wrap this up you've been very kind and generous with your time i couldn't ask for more i really appreciate it Thank you so much and it is always a pleasure I really enjoy these interviews with you Ali so so thank you so much for inviting me I wish we could have done it live I wish it was live because it would have been so much more fun as you as you know I'm a very passionate guy I just jump up and I down know. the stage but but hopefully <laughs> this audio uh, the energy will still come come across I oh believe me believe me Prith it uh, it definitely does and I and I wish it was in person and uh, and I mean this uh, quite sincerely Uh, I always feel like I'm leaving a little smarter after I talk to you and I'm going to listen to the audio a few times just so I can relive it and and relearn. I really uh, I really mean that. Because we live in the COVID environment, of course this is uh, remote and uh, we're going to stop the recording, but Prith and Tom, if you could just sort of stay with me and not end the uh, the the call, uh, that would be great and we'll be done sort of 30 seconds after stopping recording. Thank you. Thank you so much. Tech, cars, machines. Subscribe here or at techcarsmachines.com and gtkpartners.com.